The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'll be your host today. Beth Heaton, the regular host, will be back next week. Now on to today. Are you looking for a college education with a more experiential component? Don't want your learning to be limited to the classroom? You might consider a school with a co-op program. We'll be addressing co-op programs during our middle segment at about 20 minutes past the hour. Then for our last segment, we'll be talking to a college finance expert about how to compare college finance awards. But first, are you a high school student who is considering working in the healthcare field but not sure which one? Or maybe you already know you want to attend dental school, but you want to know more about how to get in. Today, we'll be talking with Christine Kenyon, whose experience ranges from institutions as diverse as Babson College, Duke University, and Boston College, and who is now an educational consultant with College Coach. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, all right. Again, yeah. Thanks so much for coming. Let's start with the basics. What, like, what kinds of courses are considered pre-dental? Um, you know, are they similar? Is it is it similar to pre-med? You know, what do you think? Very similar. Yes. So, you know, DMD actually means Doctor of Medicine and Dentistry, and DDS means Doctor of Dental Surgery. So, when it comes to the coursework that uh, college students take to meet the pre-dental requisites. Uh, it's pretty much almost exactly the same thing as pre-med. So college students will take courses that include biology, chemistry, organic chemistry, physics, and all of those will have to have a lab component. And then depending on the selectivity of the dental school to which you might be applying, um, some schools may also want to see a semester of writing-based English, uh, anatomy, biochemistry, psychology, math, business, a foreign language, or even some humanities or social studies courses as well. Okay, so that does sound pretty similar to pre-med. Um, that sounds like a good thing, too, because that way if students who aren't decided yet, you know, they could, they could decide down the road whether they want to apply to medical school or dental school. Absolutely. And so what's nice about that is that as a college student, you don't really need to decide which avenue you want to take until you're actually going to sit for those medical school exams or the dental school exam. And so you could be pre-dental, you could be pre-med, which is a concentration, and you could be whatever major that you want and then, you know, take the time and really decide which avenue you want to take, what school you want to apply to in your last few years of college. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Great. Now let's get into sort of the nitty gritty. I don't think dentistry is as, let's say, glamorous sounding to people <laughs> as medicine. Um, but obviously it's an incredibly important function. I mean, you know, our teeth are necessary to our well-being. So who might be good at dentistry and who might enjoy it? You know, who should really consider it as a field? Sure. So, you know, I think that those who are interested in dentistry, they want to go into a helping profession. They want to go into something within the healthcare field. Um, And they really enjoy an emphasis on preventative care. So I think that um, in many cases with dentistry, the work that you do isn't necessarily life or death. And for a lot of students and a lot of adults, that can kind of be a nice thing. There's sort of a routine to the work that you do. It's important. It's needed. Um, At times, it can be lucrative. Uh, But more importantly, it's something that you're helping others, but on a daily basis, there is a bit more of a routine, and, and it isn't necessarily a life or death situation. Okay, so that probably means that they can keep regular hours. They can work mostly, you know, eight to five or something like that, right? Yes, I think that dentistry is one of the health professions that is more well-known for having a good work-life balance. Um, Dentists can really set their own hours. There's also the ability to uh, start your own dental practice. So I think dentistry can also appeal to students who have an interest in medicine in the healthcare profession, but also have an interest in business. You know, you want to be your own boss. You want to uh, build something up from, from the ground up that has your name on it. And I think that being a dentist really lends itself well to allowing that to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that one of the courses that was recommended was a business course, and I don't remember seeing that as recommended for medicine. Um, So do you think that that's... Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, that's the one thing that's a little bit different, I think, with dentistry, because so many dentists start their own practices um, and, and dentists are needed all over the country. So I think although it's not one of the required courses you need in order to apply to dental school, um, sometimes it can be beneficial and helpful, especially for students when they are writing their dental school essays or interviewing at dental school because it can help them to articulate uh, what it is about the prospect of being their own boss and uh, that excites them, and then also to show that they know a little bit of of what challenges might lie ahead when it comes to uh, building up their own uh, company for Mm -hmm. all intents and purposes. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I think a lot of the doctors I've seen have been affiliated with hospitals, but most dentists, they just kind of have their own office. There might be one or two dentists in there. You know, often it's just one. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's really interesting. Um, and I'll just say that as I've gotten older, the dentist has become more important to me, unfortunately. So I want good people. I want smart people to be dentists. So I'll put in a plug for that, too. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, let's see. So many of the, and forgive me, I'm going to keep comparing this to pre-med programs just because I, I know more about it. Um, sure. Many pre-med programs emphasize that you don't need to major in a science and stress that, in fact, they are looking for students with a different background, like, you know, you sort of hear about uh, pre-med students who major in English or who major in philosophy or, you know, or, you know, any number of things, right? Is that, um, can that even be an advantage for dentistry in the same way that it is for, for medicine or is it maybe less so? What are your thoughts on that? I, I think it definitely can be for the more selective dental programs out there. You know, I think nowadays patients really want to see healthcare providers who they feel comfortable connecting with. 
you know, patients don't want to feel embarrassed about discussing their everyday routines and, and how they care for themselves. So by having a college student major in a different subject than a natural science, um, you know, it really allows the student to develop different aspects of themselves, you know, reading a different book and researching philosophy and learning about these different backgrounds and experiences helps to build, helps to build empathy and understanding towards those um, from different backgrounds than, than you. And so I think that can only benefit students in the long term. That can only benefit, benefit healthcare providers to be a better provider. And so while I think that there are certainly dentists who dental schools that really are just looking for students who have the background, the technical background in the sciences needed to be a good dentist for those more selective dental programs. Um, they are going to want to see students and applicants who are a little bit more holistic in their college preparation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So in general, um, what are dental schools looking for? I mean, obviously, they're not looking at high school students yet. They're looking at the college students. So what, what are they looking for in their college students? So aside from, you know, the prerequisites in terms of courses, dental schools are looking to see that students have a vested interest in this industry. Because dentistry is a more focused area of study, they really want to make sure that students know that this is exactly right for them. Whereas if you were to go to medical school, you would have many different rotations to really find out what type of doctor you wanted to be and in what setting. With dentistry, you already are a specialist. And while there are even more specialties you can go into within dentistry, um, I think that dental programs really want to see that students know that this is right for them. So the way that uh, college students can show that this is something that they have a vested interest in and that they've done research on um, is really by trying to get as much exposure as possible. So I think shadowing a local dentist, um, doing an informational interview with a dentist um, is always helpful. There are even jobs that are available as a dental hygiene assistant or a dental assistant uh, that you can get with either an associate's degree or, you know, in some cases, even with just a high school degree. So students who are working in a dental practice in some capacity, that's always a huge indicator that they have a vested interest in in the field. Um, I think in other ways, you can also sort of do the more typical college things you think about when when you have a specific interest. So students can join the pre-dental club. If there isn't a pre-dental club on your campus, you can certainly start one. Um, And certainly seeking out any opportunities to volunteer or do research within the field um, will help a student to really highlight that dentistry is, is what they know is right for them. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So how, so let's go back to high school students since, since I think a lot of the people who are listening to us are going to be focused, sure. you know, they'll be parents of high school students. So how should a high school student who is considering dentistry uh, prepare for the required college coursework and also maybe even just, so this is kind of a two-part question, decide whether they want to you know, this might be something that they want to pursue. Sure. So for high school students, I think what's really helpful is to take a variety of coursework that really emphasizes strength in the sciences and in math. So I think courses like chemistry, biology, physics, and algebra are particularly important for students who will be applying as a pre-dental concentration on their college applications. Um, and then similarly to what was recommended for those college students, I think high school students can sort of jump ahead and get, you know, an advanced opportunity to build that interest in the field by trying to gain exposure. So uh, I've worked with a number of students who had uh, great success just going to their local dentist and saying, hey, can I talk to you about this job and what your everyday looks 
looks like and what an average week looks like and hear about your experience of how you got to this point and what you were thinking about when you were in my shoes as a high school student. Um, I, I think every student I've worked with who has that interest in dentistry, their dentist was thrilled to talk to them about that and to allow them to sort of shadow for maybe a day just to get an experience of what dentistry is like. Um, I also think that if that's not an option or as another opportunity to sort of gain some expertise or show interest in the field, uh, students can join their any sort of uh, health occupation uh, interest club at their school, pre-med interest club, anything that shows some sort of a, a budding interest in the healthcare field um, is a way to sort of highlight your interest in high school. Mm-hmm. I know that there's dental clinics too. I mean, I wonder if volunteering at those would also be helpful. You know, clinics yeah, for low-income people. And, you know, I actually worked with a student once who they didn't have any luck with shadowing a dentist. They they lived in an area that their dentists weren't really all over the place. And so they were really trying to think long and hard about how they could show some sort of an interest in dentistry. And so they came up with a community service project uh, where they collected toothbrushes and floss and created sort of dental care packages for uh, the homeless community in, in their city. And so they were able to sort of, you know, show that they had this interest, um, do a little bit of good for the community, even though it wasn't something super specific. I think in the college application process, it really showed the admissions office that they were serious about this interest. This was uh, something that was near and dear to their heart, and dentistry was something that they were passionate about. Right, right. Um, well, and that seems relevant to... My next question, I was kind of wondering if there are any, you know, seven or eight year BA or DDS degrees, also known as accelerated BS dental programs. Um, do, do those exist in the same way that they exist for medical school? Absolutely, absolutely. Just like with those advanced um, DSMD programs, these are highly selective programs that are affiliated with a certain university that also has um, a dental school as part of their graduate program or certain universities that have a partnership with a local dental graduate school that has sort of an agreement with, you know, some high-achieving students in the program. So in order to be considered for one of those, it's very similar to those accelerated medical school programs in that as a high school student, you really need to be um, a top-notch student. You need to apply for these programs as you apply for general admission at the, uh, in your senior year. Um, and it's at a much more accelerated pace where students would start their uh, dental school coursework in their fourth year of college. Okay. So I think that those can be positive for some students, but I always like, at least when I'm thinking about the pre-med students, I always remind students that they'll have the rest of their life to be a doctor, but they only have four years to be a college student and take classes in literature and take classes in art if they want to, or, you know, whatever it is that they might want to do. And uh, maybe take those business classes that you mentioned. So I always like to kind of, well, in some ways for some students, these accelerated programs I think are really nice. Um, You know, I think for other students, you know, take your time, go ahead and take that extra year um, and enjoy your college experience. Yeah. So do you feel similarly? Absolutely. I think there are some students who maybe grow up in a family where um, there's a history of family members being dentists, and for them, they they have sort of this one goal and and passion to kind of take over a family dentistry practice or just to be involved in this industry. And so, again, like exactly like you said, 
for some students, it can be a really great way to sort of accelerate the process of becoming a dentist. But I think for the average student, you know, it's, it's hard in the U.S. And, and with the great way that the U.S. high school and, and higher education systems are built, um, you're not tracked into one area, one industry, or one career path when you're younger. So I think it can be challenging when you're a teenager to make a, a decision as impactful as committing to a seven-year graduate program when you're 17. So I think you really need to, to think long and hard about if that's right for you and know that if it's not right for you or if you apply and aren't accepted to one of these accelerated programs, it's really going to be just fine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, even if I'm thinking about medical school, the accelerated medical school programs, I had a student who didn't get into the accelerated medical school program she got it, you know, she applied to, but then when she was applying out of undergrad, she got into Johns Hopkins Medical School. So obviously, mm-hmm. everything turned out just fine for her. So. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I guess the, my last question, and we just have a few minutes left, is um, how competitive is it to get a job? Are there really, are there jobs available for graduates? Great question. You know, the American Dental Association says that this is actually a really great time to get into the field of dentistry. So, you know, they really highlight that there are exceptional career opportunities for minority students. There are going to be large numbers of dentists who are projected to retire in the next 20 years. So new dentists will be needed in private practice um, and also as teachers and researchers um, in public health dentistry. Um, And as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, the older we get, the more important um, dental care becomes to you. And so I think, you know, there are increasing numbers of older adults who have access to health care, who are keeping their teeth longer, who have a greater awareness of oral health care. Um, and because of that, that means that there's an increased demand for, for dentistry and for cosmetic services. So, you know, I think those are some really compelling arguments that the ADA makes to sort of show that there are going to be jobs available. Um, this is a budding uh, industry for, for growth and opportunity. And, you know, I, I think you can never discount advancements in technology. And, you know, I think that we're only going to see more interesting ways for healthcare professionals to practice their care through the advancements in technology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can even think of one subspecialty. My niece has autism, and she's had to have a lot of dental work done. And they had to go to a special dentist who, you know, kind of had the sensitivity and knowledge to work with, you know, a child with autism, where it was even more traumatic than for, I think, a a kind of neurotypical child, as they say. So... Mm Yeah, yeah. every day, you know, more information is is coming out about the relationship that oral health care has to your overall general health and and how important it is um, to to maintain a healthy oral oral health routine in order to maintain just sort of an overall general healthy life. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, good to know that there are jobs available for graduates, and and clearly it's a really important job as well. So um, thanks so much, Christine. We're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we'll be talking about colleges with co-op programs. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, our next segment is regarding colleges with co-op programs. Here to speak with us about them is Kenan Dick, who is an educational consultant with College Coach, but also previously worked for Drexel University, which offers a very strong co-op program. Welcome, Kenan. Hi, thanks, Ellie. Hi, so Kenan, I'm really looking forward to your insider view since you worked at a school with a co-op program. But let's mm-hmm. start with the basics. What is a co-op program? And, you know, really specifically, how is it different even just from schools that have internship programs? Well, I think one of the biggest differences um, between you know, the, the traditional internship and a traditional co-op program, uh, at least from my, from my perspective at Drexel, was that the co-op program really is fully integrated into the educational process. So at Drexel, we had um, most of our full co-op programs were five-year programs. So what we did was we had kind of a traditional freshman year, and then from there, the sophomore, junior, and the, the fourth year, which we really didn't have a term for, um, was essentially six months of co-op and six months of coursework. 
So those students in those three years didn't really have a summer break or you know, some of the traditional um, calendars that, that students normally have, but instead would be doing uh, you know, full-time paid and in some cases unpaid position um, for those six months, those three six-month periods. So it really was something that was the, the entire academic calendar was built around um, to, to drive that experiential learning and have that intermesh with the academic learning segments. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that, of course, doing internships as a regular college student, you kind of have to wait till the summer or you have to fit it around your classes. So that's a little more challenging. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, okay. um, and if I'm not mistaken, the Northeastern is a semester program, so they most of their uh, internships or their co-op program um, is going to be during a semester time or during the summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, I mean, you just mentioned Northeastern. Um, you worked at Drexel. What are the most mm-hmm. well-known co-op programs? Well, it's been a while since I've been, you know, kind of fully involved in that, but I think, you know, the, the big three um, when I was you know, at Drexel, uh, what we saw as our biggest competitors were Northeastern and University of Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And both of those were, I think, kind of in the, the front wave um, of the, the co-op program where they really designed their, um, their education around that experiential learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you know, Drexel's program is over 100 years old. I think the University of Cincinnati is 100 years old. And I think um, University of or Northeastern is something similar. So they've mm-hmm. been doing it for quite a long time. And I think one of the benefits of, of being kind of located, you know, around a, a urban center is that, you know, they formed those relationships with their, um, with these corporations and have, you know, had really good experiences so that, um, you know, they've got solid options for many, if not most, if not all of their majors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure being located in Philadelphia, and Boston and, and Cincinnati, for that matter, gives you access mm-hmm. to a lot of options. Um, but do students ever go away for, you know, when they've got a six-month internship? Oh, sure. Um, in fact, you know, part of the, the process, we had this, this um, office, the co-op office, that was they had a lot of coordinators that would sit down with the students and go over all the parameters. And so some of them were looking for co-ops near home so they could live at home and then commute to uh, the job, and you know, to a certain extent, you know, they can make that work out. Um, others were going to go, you know, across the country to co-op programs in California or Chicago, et cetera. Um, so those parameters and what you were able to do were something that you would work out with the coordinators to kind of narrow the search. And, you know, the more flexible you were in terms of geographic range, the more options typically you would have. Mm-hmm. So it couldn't, so a student, uh, well, the ideal would be to be flexible. I don't know if you had a lot of students who wanted to go to Hawaii, for example. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that was. I'm sure that was a request more than all, more than once. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Especially uh, uh, after coming off of a rough winter. <laughs> so. Yep, exactly. Uh, <laughs> all right. In all seriousness, though, how would you say being at a school with a co-op program um, impacts the classroom experience? Well. That's a good question. I think it does so in a couple of different ways. The first way is that, and I would, uh, in conversations with engineers especially, I would get this uh, quite often, is that some of these classes are, you know, are pretty theoretical in nature. So when you're studying thermodynamics, you know, sometimes it's tough to figure out, you know, how am I going to actually use this? 
And one of the cool things about the, um, you know, the internships and the co-ops that they were doing was that, you know, they would go and do a, an internship at DeWalt or something like that and, um, and have to figure out how to dissipate heat out of the motor. And lo and behold, there's an actual practical um, reason for studying this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I think that it would, you know, part of that is that you can actually see the real-world applications um, for this. And even if you're a student who um, hasn't gone on the co-op, let's say you're a freshman, you still have those that, um, that have been out on co-op that have used this stuff in your classes and, uh, and are kind of pitching in these perspectives in the classroom environment as well. Mm-hmm. The other thing that um, is kind of an offshoot of this, and um, it's hard to tell if it's kind of a, I think it's a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario, but um, there is definitely at Drexel a pre-professional bent to the entire university. And that um, a lot of what you're trying to learn, you're trying to figure out how I can apply this to my particular career. And, um, and so I think that that focus on knowledge for its application was something that was just part of the culture at Drexel. Mm-hmm. So I think that also had an impact. So, you know, when, when I was at William & Mary, there was, you know, just the life of the mind was a little bit different. And so we didn't necessarily concern ourselves with how I might use this material but it was just mm-hmm. kind of fun to learn philosophy or history, et cetera. And I think the, the culture at Drexel is a little bit different in that mm-hmm. way. But so I think that's yeah. another kind of effect. Yeah, I would think so. And, and that actually feeds right into my next question, which is who would thrive at a school with a co-op program? Because obviously you've got smart kids at all these schools, you know, whether they're going to William or Mary or Northeastern, we're talking about smart kids. But mm-hmm. one kid's going to have a really pre-professional bent, Right, and then as you said, the William and Mary kid, it's more life of the mind. So let's talk a little right. bit more about that, about who's who who should look at a co-op program school. Well, um, the first thing I would say to that would be you know, certainly there were a lot of students who were first-generation students who um, their philosophy, their educational philosophy, was that you you know you get an education for a particular job. And obviously, you know, the, the, the Drexel focus and the co-op program fits into that really, really well. Mm-hmm. The other piece of this is the student who's kind of undecided. And maybe they've got a couple of different career paths that they're looking at. And it's, it's rather common for students to come back from a co-op and say, I had no idea what it meant to be, you know, X um, and, and what that career path looked like. And I hated it. So I need to change my major. I need to look for a different mm-hmm. co-op um, next cycle. And yeah, I'm never doing that again. Um, and so it gives you a, a real-life taste of the career path before you invest, you know, a whole four-year degree into that, that area of the specialization. So mm-hmm. I think for the undecided student as well as the pretty focused student, it can have benefits for both groups. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so who, who should not go to a school that requires a co-op program? That's a good question, too. Um, that's a really good question. I think, quite honestly, the students that struggled the most um, were the ones who just, in terms of their, of their maturity level, just weren't quite there yet. Um, weren't quite ready to, to make some of those decisions as to what they wanted to do and where they wanted to focus their time. Um, oftentimes they were the ones that came back from co-op and the co-op employer wasn't terribly happy with them because 
you know, you have to be there at nine o'clock. I mean, you can't just skip it, you know, skip class or, or, or if you're used to skipping class, you can't do that in a co-op. You've got to be there at nine o'clock sharp. So the students who aren't ready to take that aspect of it seriously, um, those are usually the ones who should not be at a co-op program. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and everybody, you know, in terms of maturity wise, I think everybody um, gets there at their own you know, point in their life. Um, but there are plenty of 17 and 18 year olds that just aren't quite ready for that yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or probably 19 and 20 year olds, maybe even too. Sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, now, what were some of the cool, sort of cooler co ops that you? I'm just kind of interested. I mean, obviously engineering, um, but what were some of the other? Um, were there other programs where you thought that having a co-op program just worked really well for the students? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think I mean, some I, of the, um, the students who were interested in business and wanted to, to get into finance and accounting, um, those students, I think, really benefited. And we had some, you know, we had like, you know, Anderson, when they were still around, we had Deloitte and Touche. We had some of the big accounting houses. Um, that we were partnered with. So, um, so I think those students got some really good insights and really good resume builders. And the interesting thing about them was that, you know, they often would, you know, they would leave their um, junior plus one year and, um, and already have job offers. So they were mm-hmm. seniors with a job offer in their pocket, which is great. And some mm-hmm. of them were pretty nice offers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, for those kids, I think it was, was a, a real benefit. Um, I certainly saw a lot, just because of the nature of the students that I work with, um, I saw a lot for engineering. Um, but I also think that the students who were in some of the creative arts, by building a resume and having experience on their resume when they graduated, really helped them get their first job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was going to ask that, too. I mean, I think the basic assumption out there is that these ex- experiences just like internships would really help you get a job and so you definitely saw that to be the case exactly exactly mm-hmm. so you know some of the art students who um who wanted to go work in advertising or um or go work for mtv or what have you um you know just having that on your resume already was was really helpful mm-hmm it's probably even more helpful for them really than engineering graduates i mean you sort of don't hear about engineering yep. graduates having trouble getting jobs, right? So, right. yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So that's very interesting. Now, I have heard of one other school that has a co-op program, and I'm curious um, how much you know about it. Have you heard of Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio? I've heard it mentioned. I don't know much about it, though. Okay. So here's what I think is interesting is that they have a co-op program, but they're not the sort of pre-engineering, you know, or not pre-engineering, excuse me, but engineering. It doesn't seem to have the same kind of engineering business bent. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a very non-traditional college that emphasizes experiential learning. Um, Their program is 90 years old. All the students are required to participate. And um, students spend four quarters in their first, second, and third years in a Um, Mm co-op. And what was interesting to me is that they really emphasize the connection between a liberal arts curriculum and experiential learning. So for them, it kind of seems like your biology class, you're going to be spending some time maybe doing research. And and it seemed like there were maybe more students doing work with nonprofits or not-for-profits, you know, maybe even Mm -hmm. doing kind of advocacy work. Um, 
you know, political work. So just a very like a, a kind of similar model, but in some ways like the polar opposite, like, you know, Northeastern and bizarro world for anybody who knows a dated Superman reference. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I thought that it was kind of interesting and I wanted to give, I wanted to give a plug for them too, because I thought, you know, how nice to have that there is an option for students who want the exper- experiential education aspects of a co-op program but are looking for a more alternative type of education and a progressive environment. Because um, right. I'm guessing I'm guessing that, you know, that's not, again, I'm making assumptions, but I really, you know, if when I think engineering and business, I don't think kind of progressive, liberal, not that people can't be, but that's not sort of the focus of the environment. Right. And that could actually be, you know, a great um, avenue for, you know, the kid who wants the experiential learning but also wants the liberal arts um, education and, you know, something that's not, that doesn't have that kind of same pre-professional focus that Drexel does. Mm-hmm. So uh, it can be, I can see that solving a lot of arguments for kids who want to have that educational atmosphere, but parents who are saying, you know, you have to have a job after, after college, that's, you know, what you need to do. And this being a way to kind of bridge that, that divide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, just to give you a sense of how different these things look, like I've driven by Drexel and it's very, you know, it's it's very, feels very sort of downtown, it feels very mm-hmm. office-like, and then if you go to Antioch, it's like, um, you know, you feel kind of like you might be on a farm. So it's just a very different, I mean, right. it isn't a town, but, you know, really sort of polar opposites, but still offering some some kind of similar experiences, which I think is pretty cool. Um sure. So I'm just going to ask one last question. How do you think, I mean, I, I, I think at Drexel and Northeastern, the co-op wasn't actually required. Is that correct? It was an option? Um, it was for, it depends on the program um, okay. at Drexel. So there were some programs, uh, we had five-year programs and we had four-year programs. Um, there were very few four-year programs that didn't include a, a, a co-op. Um, where you could just take the coursework. And even in the four-year programs, we would have um, three-month internships that were incorporated, and often we'd have uh, two of those that were intersliced with those middle two years. So, um, so for the majority of the majors, there was some sort of co-op program that was incorporated. Okay, okay. So really, everybody who went there, it's not like you had, you sort of would accidentally have an English student enroll who didn't really right. know what they were getting into. Right, exactly. Okay. So almost everybody was involved. I don't think that's the case for Northeastern. I think they have um, options at Northeastern. Mm-hmm. Um, obvi- I'm not an expert on their programs, but um, but I think that they, you know, there are other schools you can opt in or opt out with a little bit more ease. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, great. Well, this has been really helpful, Kenan. I, I think this sure. has been really interesting. I've never worked at a school with a co-op program, and you know, I worked at places like Reed and, and University of Chicago where it was all about the life of the mind and not particularly professionally oriented, though, of course, the graduates went on to do fine things. So, um, But it's great to hear about this kind of an institution. So thanks again. My pleasure. Okay. All right. Um, we'll be taking a break now, but when we get back, we'll be talking about how to compare financial aid and merit aid packages from different schools. Thanks so much.
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our third and final segment. I'll now be talking to Kathy Ruby, a finance expert with College Coach, about how to compare finance, financial aid and merit scholarship packages from different schools. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Sally. Nice to be here. Um, so let's go ahead and start with what are the basic steps to make sure you are comparing apples to apples when comparing financial aid awards? I mean, I, I personally, when I was a high school counselor for a while, and I remember sitting down with a student, and she had four different packages, and they looked so different, and one school looked like it was giving more money, but it cost more, and more of it was loans. It was very confusing. So, um, yeah, they're all so different. So what are the steps that you should take? Yeah, so, well, that's that's the problem, of course, right, is that they're all so different. You know, some of them, and, and just to step back for a minute and make sure we're all on the same page, what we're talking about now are really financial aid notification. So 
Um, students may have already received just a scholarship letter, but financial aid notifications come in March and sometimes as late as early April. Um, and they are as a result of someone filling out the FAFSA form, the federal form, or maybe the CSS profile form. So it's sort of a summary of everything that the school is able to give you, both merit-based scholarships and need-based grants and maybe work-study and maybe loans. And and the issue is, yeah, they really are different. Some of them will come electronically. Some of them will come on paper. Um, some provide you with uh, total costs, and then others just show you what the direct costs are, like the tuition fees and room and board. Um, so it's, it, you have to read the fine print pretty carefully. And really, that's, that's the first piece of advice, is read it all carefully. Make sure you read any attachments, and sometimes it'll be a you know, a brochure that comes with it, or sometimes it'll be a link to the terms and conditions of the award. But make sure you read everything carefully. I mean, nobody's trying to intentionally mislead you. I mean, I'm standing up my, for my former profession here. Um, but everybody's got different opinions of what's good communication. And so they're trying to outline it for you as best they can, but everybody's doing it differently. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I do apologize for casting aspersions. If I, <laughs> if, if I did so, I promise it was accidental. Uh, oh, no, I wasn't even. Yeah, I wasn't even. I, it's, it's frustrating now to be out in the world and helping families compare these. And I can see how different they are. Now, there, there is there may be some consistency because the government does have something called a shopping sheet. And um, some schools choose to use that. Now, the first thing you want to do is think about how you're going to compare the awards. What are you going to use to keep track? I mean, I've seen people write it down on paper. Um, There are some online tools that you can do, uh, that you can use. Um, I've done a quick perusal of some of them, certainly the College Board, which is a website we refer to a lot on this show, the Big Future website. They've got an award comparison tool. Um, I also found the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a government agency, so consumerfinance.gov. They have a great comparison tool that lets you put in your numbers and then it'll actually um, help you figure out what you're borrowing and what your payments are going to be later. So that's kind of a, a good thing to figure out too. Or a lot of people just like to develop their own spreadsheet, you know, make their own, you know, do it the best way they know how with a spreadsheet. So, mm-hmm. but, but use some mechanism to compare to keep track because otherwise it just gets too confusing. Right. So is that really where people are going to be starting is kind of doing a spreadsheet? I mean, how would you break down that spreadsheet? Like, where do you start? Yeah, well, you start with the costs. So the first number that you want to be establishing is what is it? What what is the sticker price? What are the actual and, and then what are the actual costs going to be? So when a college gives you a financial aid award, what they do is they present you with what's called the cost of attendance, which they create. Um, using, you know, their actual charges for tuition and fees and room and board, but also sometimes estimates of what expenses will be. So that that cost of attendance includes everything. It includes tuition and fees, room and board, a, an estimate of what books will cost, an estimate of what personal expenses will cost, and an estimate of transportation. So I think the first thing to do is to establish what the direct costs are, meaning what are the actual tuition and fees going to be and then what's room and board going to cost? And the, the thing to look at there is many times what they present you with are averages. So you've got to figure out, all right, is my child going to be in a program that might have some additional fees? Like if they're an engineering student or a nursing student or whatever it might be. Um, and then if your student's going to live on campus, most of the time what you see for room and board in a cost of attendance is an average. 
Um, and so you've got to figure out, okay, what are the range of expenses? Because sometimes your room charges can be pretty different depending on the type of dorm your child chooses. Um, and then, of course, your, your board costs or your meal costs can be different depending on what kind of meal plan your child chooses. So you've got to do a little research to figure out, okay, what's this really going to cost? And I just think it's helpful to separate out, okay, what are we going to pay to the college and then what are our estimates for all those other things? You may not agree with what the college's estimates are for what books are going to cost or for what transportation is going to cost or what your child needs for personal expenses. So you kind of want to sift through that information and make things consistent. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Great. And then, um, okay, so you nailed down the cost, but what about the money that's been awarded? Okay, so when you're looking at the money that's been awarded, of course, the most important thing is to understand how much of it is free money, right? So how much of it is grant or scholarship? Um, You know, most students will be awarded a student loan, and some students will be awarded work-study. Certainly, we can talk about that in more detail later, but the most important piece is to figure out, okay, how much grant and how much scholarship is awarded? So what's the true net price? Because when you subtract that out, that's what it's actually going to cost. So when you're looking at that grant and scholarship money, you do want to understand why was it awarded and who did it come from, right? Did it come from the institution or is it a state grant or is it a federal grant? Um, And then why was it awarded? Was it awarded to my student because of their academic, you know, profile or was it awarded because um, we're we demonstrated financial need as a family. So you want to make sure you understand whether it's merit-based or need-based. And then most importantly, is it going to be renewable? And this is where, you know, reading through the terms and conditions of the award is pretty important. So if it's a merit-based scholarship, most of the time what takes for it to be renewed is some certain GPA requirement or maybe participation in a certain you know, program or whatever it might be. So you want to make sure you understand that, of course. Um, But if it's need-based, usually what you'll see in the terms and conditions of an award when it comes to a need-based grant is they'll say something like, you know, if your need stays similar from one year to the next, you can expect that this will be renewed is usually the language. Um, But you'll want to understand uh, what that actually means. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think the biggest reason that financial need changes, of course, you know, if your income goes up or your income goes down, that might affect how much need you have. But one of the bigger factors is how many children in the household are enrolled in college, right? So you want to make sure, so let's say you're starting out and you've got one in college and you've been awarded a grant. Well, maybe a good question to ask the financial aid office might be is if you've got another child going to college in two years, it's perfectly fine to ask the financial aid office, okay, this is what you gave me this year, but can you give me any more in two years when my need goes up because I've got two kids in college? Um, mm-hmm. And probably even more importantly is the flip side of that is if you've got two students in college and you see a need-based grant on a financial aid award, you really want to understand what's going to happen when the older one graduates. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you don't want the rug yanked out from under you. Or you, you right. want to understand, you really need to be planning for four years, I think, is the most important, the big picture thing to remember. You want to understand what this package is going to look like for four years, as much as you can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, and so what are some of the things that can cause confusion on an award letter? Um, I think the cost of attendance, 
causes confusion because parts of it are real costs and then parts of it are just estimates of what the school thinks it's going to cost. So that can, that can cause confusion. Um, I also think sometimes, not always, but sometimes colleges include the expected family contribution um, or the EFC on a financial aid award. And, and what that number is, just to step back, that number is what was used to determine your eligibility for need-based financial aid. So when you filled out the FAFSA or possibly the CSS profile, the expected family contribution was calculated and it was subtracted from the college's cost of attendance to establish your need. And that's how the college decided how much money to give you. They might not have met your full need. Most colleges don't. um, But that's the number that they used. So don't get confused by the EFC if you see it on a package. That number actually doesn't matter anymore. What really matters is what are you actually going to have to pay? And that's, mm-hmm. that's the cost minus the grant and scholarship aid that they offered. I mean, that's, if you try to just keep it that narrow a focus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, when I, worked at, uh, I worked at one school, um, not one of the ones that I've mentioned today, but we would put parent loans on mm-hmm. packages. And I think that that was confusing to people. And, you know, our philosophy was we were trying to make sure people were aware of these right. additional loans. Um, but I do think it was confusing to people. So kind of maybe talk about that. Yeah, and bit. I think that that can be confusing because one school may do it while another one doesn't. So what, what you're talking about there is something called the Federal Direct PLUS loan. And that used to stand for parent loan for undergraduate students, but now it just is PLUS. And that's a loan that parents can borrow, and you can borrow them pretty much at any college in the U.S. that participates in federal loan programs, and you can borrow that PLUS loan as long as you don't have any adverse credit, and you can borrow up to the cost of attendance less any other financial aid that's received. Um, So some colleges will package it into the financial aid award, and so you'll get this package that looks great. It looks like they've packaged you with enough aid to cover the entire cost. But when you look more carefully, you see that it's a plus loan that covers a good chunk of the cost. And that's money, of course, that you'll have to borrow and then repay. Um, So just be aware of that um, and keep an eye out for it. If you're not packaged with a plus loan, do know that you're still able to borrow it. It's just that that college chose not to package it. And if you go to their website, I'm sure they'll have some information about the plus loan and how you might use it. Um, But they just chose not to put it in the financial aid award. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. So it really is going to be accessible to you at pretty much any college. Yeah, any college okay. that participates in federal loan programs, yes. Okay, okay, good. And so maybe just one last question. We just have, it looks like, a you know, one minute left about, are there any calculators out there to help families figure out how much they might have to borrow and what that's going to look like? Well, I think, I mean, this goes back to the four-year question, right? So you want to make sure you are anticipating all four years of what you're going to need to pay. And there are some good calculators. Um, Again, the College Board, if you go to the bigfuture.collegeboard.org, and they have a whole set of calculators under the Paying for College tab. And they've got a great calculator that you can use to figure out how much you can afford to borrow. Um, It's called the Parent Debt Calculator. And then another one that actually calculates your estimated payments. and bankrate.com has a student loan repayment calculator also, um, and there are lots more of them out there. But um, get familiar with them because it's, it's a good idea for both you and your student to anticipate what your monthly payments will be. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Great. Listen, thanks so much, Kathy. I really appreciate it. All right. Happy to help.
Okay. All right. So thanks to Kathy and to all my guests today. Um, we have a great lineup for next week's show that I want to tell you about. First of all, Beth he- Heaton will be back as your host. And the topics will, will be why I chose University of Southern California, um, how to write, or otherwise known as USC, but I like to make sure to differentiate it from USC in um, South Carolina, how to raise a creative child. This particular topic is more geared towards middle school students. And then we'll be answering some finance questions from listeners. And so finally, just a reminder that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. And you can also download every show for free on iTunes. So get in there and check out our our archives. The last two weeks, our admissions experts... um, you know, have discussed things as varied as Naviance Tips and Tricks. Naviance is a program that many of you have at your high school. Um, they've also answered admissions listener questions. And uh, there was also a topic on what is financial aid verification, um, among a lot of other topics. So there's a ton of great stuff in each of those segments. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Oh, and by the way, I almost forgot, if you do listen to us on iTunes and you like us, please be sure to rate us so that other and rate us highly so that other people can go ahead and find us. Thanks so much, everyone. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.